needed. How many of y'all know marriage is easy? Okay, maybe not. How many of y'all know relationships are hard? Right? I mean, the one relationship that I have of me, myself, and I is really good. And then when I invite somebody else in, they don't know the same language that I know, and so it all gets messed up. And so here we have marriage, and this idea of marriage, and marriage is inviting someone else and trying to do life on a deep level. And we're just always, it seemed like, trying to fight through and think through things and try to get to the common ground. And so this morning, as we begin this series called Once Upon a Marriage, we're thinking about this idea over the next few weeks of what does it look like to have a healthy biblical marriage? What does it look like for us to, instead of pulling apart, pulling together and and what God has for us in our marriage life. And one of the things this past week when I taught about rest, many of the husbands went home and they took this very practically and they went home and they took naps and uh, it created tension in marriages. And so the guys were saying, hey, I went home and I did what you said. I took a nap and my wife was not happy because our to-do list didn't get done or her to-do list didn't get done. And I was like, well, that's awesome because this week we're teaching on marriage and we'll figure all that stuff out. So here we are this week thinking of once Upon a marriage. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at marriages from throughout the Bible. And today, the first marriage that we'll look at will be the one of Adam and Eve. And again, what I want us to grasp today in particular is what does a healthy biblical characteristics of a healthy biblical marriage look like? And for us to kind of have that foundation as we dig into these stories and dig into the marriages in particular throughout the Old Testament. So this morning, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. We'll be looking there in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 and kind of following the story of Adam and Eve and how marriage began and how relationships began. The first thing that I want you to grasp about marriage is this, is that a biblical marriage is between a man and a woman. Okay, a biblical marriage is between a man and a woman. Between In Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, it says this, So God created mankind in his own image. He created them in the image of God. He created them male and female. Now, those two words, male and female, are distinct words. So the word for male is the car, which means male, man, and the word for woman is the kibah, which means female, and the distinctiveness of those words is that they are sexually different. They are two different beings, and that even though God created them both in his image, they are distinctly different. And so here God sets from the beginning a clear definition that the two that we're going to talk about some more things about the characteristics about this relationship and why they're distinctly male and female, but this is key to the relationship Distinctly male and female is the beginning point of that relationship, mainly because of the sexual identity, but there's even more than that. The second thing that I want you to get, not only is a healthy biblical marriage between just a man and a woman, but also a biblical marriage that's healthy has companionship at its core, one of its core values. That whenever God created man and woman, he looked at them and said, I don't want them to be alone. I don't want man to be alone. So he created a companion. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 18 and following, he says this, The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. Now this idea of corresponding is that they have the ability to literally correspond, to relate, to talk. And so that God looked over creation and he had created all these things, all of the land animals, all the sea animals, and all of them had been brought before Adam. And he looked at them and none of them could correspond with him. None of them were of the same essence. He couldn't relate to any of them and have a deep 
fellowship and do life with them. And so we'll see in the next verse, because of that, God initiates to create a helpmate for him, a companion for him. Look at verse 20. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the sky, and to every wild animal. But for the man, for Adam, there was no helper was found corresponding to him. Again, this idea of being able to relate and have relationship. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep. See, again, it's biblical to nap on Sundays. A deep sleep to come over the man, probably during the Cowboys game. And he slept. God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that place. Now, again, as a part of this whole creation process, before this, God had created all of creation out of nothing except for man. Man came from dust. And then the very first thing that was created from a created being was Eve. And so this is uniqueness as a part of this ability to correspond, to relate, that they have relationship together because Eve was taken out of from the man. There was a creation there. So this unity of the correspondence, the ability to relate to one another. Then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this one, at last, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she is taken from a man. So this idea here in this passage, some of your, actually some of your Bibles will say a suitable helper was found for, for, um, for Adam. And this idea of suitable helper, it's a couple of things that go with that. One is that they could correspond, they can relate, that they could talk, but also a helper is that she can do some things that he can't do, and he can do some things that she can't do, and so they make this team that the two of them become a team and they can accomplish things together. And so one of the words that I learned about team is together each accomplishes more. So that this man and this woman, they are suitable helpers for one another to help mate because they have a goal, they have an agenda together to serve God and to glorify God. And so the two of them are on this journey together and that it is easy for us as couples to get onto our goals and our agenda. And when we do that, we begin to separate. And so you have this rubber band approach where there's this tension, there's this conflict because we're all each trying to go our own way. And when we try to go our own way, we're not better together when we're moving in different directions. We're better together as a couple when we're moving in the same direction that each of us are supporting and encouraging and helping each other accomplish our life goals, not only as individuals, but also as a couple. And it's so easy for us to get caught up in, man, this is what Chris wants to do. This is what my wife wants to do. And so we're out and about and we wake up and we realize that we have moved far away from each other. We don't know each other because we haven't come together to talk through and support and encourage. But that God has created for us a suitable helper, someone that we can correspond with, that we can relate to, that we can have a companionship with, that we can talk with because we are better together as a team because together each of us accomplishes more. And this is that idea of us together. And even a matter of fact, as the word woman and this idea of bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, Adam uses two words. He says is, which is man, and isa, which is woman. And those two words are covenant language, that the two are in covenant together. And so when Adam saw Eve, he said, at last... I have someone that I can have a covenant relationship with. And so this is a powerful image for us of what is a a covenant relationship that Adam looks at Eve and says, she's suitable helper. She doesn't necessarily complete me, but she helps me be a better person. She helps me look and think and act a little bit more like God and more complete person. 
This is covenant language. The other thing about a biblical marriage is that a biblical marriage, not only do we have a companionship, but we also have intimacy, that we're created in this relationship to find intimacy. In Genesis chapter 2, verses 24 and 25, it says this, This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife. Literally, they are intimate together, and they become one flesh. Now, here's the interesting thing is just prior to that, we find out that Eve came from Adam and that they were once one flesh and now they are two. But now as a part of the two becoming intimate together, they now literally become one flesh together. And there's actually this thing called dode, which is a mingling of the souls that happens when two become one in that act. There's a mingling of the souls. And in that there's this covenant thing that takes place. And so the two becoming one is every time is a reenactment of our covenant relationship with one another, that that covenant, that relationship that we made when we stood in front of people in front of the pastor or whatever, the justice piece, and we stood there and we said, Hey, I do that is covenant language. And so you're entering into a covenant. And so this whole idea of intimacy is, is that we are in a covenant together and we are re-experiencing and recommitting to that covenant because the two are becoming one. Again, a powerful image of here's this one that's we're equal flesh, we're equal substance, and now we come together as one and we have this covenant together. Now the next part of that, it says they became one flesh in verse 25 both the man and his wife were naked and felt no shame. Now think of it this way. Think about the two-year-old boy or girl that, you know, they're there. Everybody's over there for a birthday party or family gathering or something like that. And isn't it funny when a two-year-old boy goes, they strip themselves down naked and they think it's hilarious to run through the crowd naked and what? They're unashamed. Why? Because they don't know that you're not supposed to run through the crowd naked. Everybody's giggling, everybody's laughing, the mom and the dad, they're like, oh my gosh, and they're trying to cover you up because we have been taught that we're not supposed to. And so this is the image for us, is that we are to be that vulnerable and that not shameful of who God is, how God has created us, especially with our companion, especially with our helpmate, especially with the one that we're in a covenant relationship, that we should be unashamed to be completely vulnerable with the other person. That there's a vulnerability, there's a transparency, that there is nothing hidden about that little kid as they're running through the crowd. You can see it all, in all of his glory. And that that is what it means for us, as a husband and wife, to be fully naked and vulnerable and unashamed. That we can be vulnerable and transparent and you know everything good and everything bad about your spouse because you're naked and unashamed. That that is the most purest of relationships that we can have because of that. There's no guilt. There's no regret. There's no remorse. In full light, you see it all, and there's no shame. The ability to be completely vulnerable with one another. Now, this isn't just physical. This is also spiritually. One of the things that I've noticed over the years being a pastor is that there's this something that happens, that there's a, a discord sometimes in relationships, and it's tied to spiritual things. That a, that a wife has grown up in a certain denomination or faith or a husband in another, and, and the, there's this, again, this tension between one another. And so it happens, the most tension they have in their week is on a Sunday because they're each going to different places and struggling through this. And so there's a tension spiritually. 
Another thing that I've noticed over the years is there's an intellectual tension sometimes that maybe one of the spouses has achieved a greater education level. And so in that greater education level, that there's a discord there. And so there's tension that grows. And so in all of this idea of intimacy, it's not just physical intimacy, but it also is a spiritual intimacy. It's an intellectual intimacy. It's an emotional intimacy. All of these different things play together because whenever in those moments we can be vulnerable and transparent and naked and not ashamed because of the covenant relationship that we have together. We are created to be intimate with one another and to share our deepest thoughts and longings and that the intimacy, the physical intimacy, again, is symbolic of all the other levels and all the other places with which intimacy is extremely important because all of us, one of our greatest longings is God has created us for fellowship. And so one of our greatest longing is, is to be known and to know. And that we have a built-in opportunity with a spouse to know and to be known, and we should be able to be naked and without shame to share our deepest thoughts, our deepest struggles, our deepest things, because we are one. Because we are Esau and Esau, we have a covenant relationship together. And that when we see the woman like, whoa, at last, you're home today, at last, you're home. We get to spend time together. You're my companion. You're my covenant relationship. I've looked forward to spending time with you because of our covenant relationship. Because we're a team. Because we're companions. Because we miss we want to find out what did you do today and how did you do it and how did you get to that goal. And we, we talk about because we're in a desire to moving in this direction, not in this direction. And when there's those unspoken tensions in a marriage relationship and a friendship, it's because we're moving away from one another. And you can naturally feel the tension building. And you may not even be able to express it, but you know that there's something that's creating separation. You know that there's something that's pulling you apart. And it's this. It's this inability to be intimate. It's this inability to be vulnerable. It's this inability to be transparency because we're hiding and we're keeping and we're moving further apart from one another rather than closer together. That we need companionship and intimacy. The next thing is this, is that a biblical marriage, a healthy biblical marriage is spiritual. So in Genesis, the very first chapter in verse, in chapter one, we get the name of God Elohim, and that is his creator name as, as God. We see him in Genesis one in the beginning of chapter two. He's all about creation and creating. Well, there's a shift. The author makes a shift in his writing. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, he gives us the creator name, and then he also tells us God's relational covenant name in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, which is Yahweh. And so here we see in that that God's a covenant God, but also he's interested in a personal relationship with us, even in Adam and Eve. And so we see that through chapter 2, and we see that through chapter 3. And then as God gives instruction to Adam and gives instruction to Eve about what it is to live in the garden and, and what it means to enjoy the beauty of the garden and enjoy life and all of creation, it's a relational covenant thing. And so then we see in chapter 3 that there's an interruption of that covenant. There's an interruption of that relationship between God the Father and his children, Adam and Eve. So in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 9, we hear the story of Adam and Eve where they fell and messed up. Look at verse 1 of chapter 3. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Now, 
This is how the serpent does. This is how the evil one does, is he takes something and he distorts it just a little bit. Because God previously had said to Adam and Eve, hey, listen, here are the trees. Here's the tree of life and here's the tree of good and evil. Don't eat from those things. Walk by them, look at them. You can touch them, whatever, but do not eat from them. Okay, that's the only thing that they had. Don't, don't eat from those things. So he begins to, to play with her mind and begin to tempt her. You can't eat from any tree. She's like, well, no, I can eat from this tree and this tree and this tree and this tree, only those two trees. And so, again, that distortion. Verse 2, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the trees, fruit from the trees in the garden. But about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat from it or touch it or you will die. Now, again, she adds her own thing. He didn't say he couldn't touch it. He just said, don't eat from it. And so automatically you can begin to see this thing, the temptation, the, the, the truth is being distorted. And so she's kind of rationalizing and thinking through this whole thing. And then he follows up and he says, but what about the tree in the middle of the garden? God said, you must not eat from it or touch it or you'll die. No, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes, your soul, your mind will be opened up and you will be like him, knowing good and evil. The woman then saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at. Now, how many times had Adam and Eve passed by those two trees and seen them and had had to have gone, wow, they're in the middle, they're awesome, they're beautiful. But now she sees them in a different light because the truth has been distorted. And so now she sees them as desirable, wants something that had been off limits, off touch, out of boundaries that God had said, look, it's here for your enjoyment to look at, but do not partake of. Now she sees it differently and there's a distortion of the truth. And so here she goes. What does she do? So she took some of its fruit and ate it. Now, here's the important thing, the next part. She turns around after she's eaten it, and does she throw it away? No. She takes it and she offers it to her husband, who was there the entire time. Spiritual abdication. The abdication of spiritual leadership in that moment. That Adam had been the one that had been given the directive in Genesis chapter 2. Adam, these two trees in the middle of the garden, do not eat from them. Enjoy them, looking at them, all that different, but do not eat from them. That's the only rule that they had in the garden was to do not eat from that thing. And Adam had passed it on. But here in this moment, Adam and Eve are together. They're a team, right? They're working together. They're Better together they are pursuing and their deal is spiritual and they're moving in this place. And Adam's role in that moment was to say, honey, let's go. There's a distortion of the truth. Let's go. Let's get away from this place. He's tricking us. He's Yes, it looks good, but let's move away from this. And he abdicated his role. He was with her and he ate it. Verse 7. Then both of their eyes were open, and they knew that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Every single time when we have sin in our life, and there's sin between our spouse and between us, every single time we look for fig leaves to sew and to cover. Every time that we break a relationship and there's something that's a hindrance, we find fig leaves and we cover ourselves and we begin separation. The thing that should be bringing us together separates us. And you even see it in verse 8. Then the man and his wife 
heard the sound of the Lord God walking. And this is the idea is that God showed up regularly at this time every day, so they knew that he was coming. So not only was there a break in the relationship between man and woman, but now here comes God walking through the garden, and they do what? They go and hide from the Lord God, which is kind of crazy because if he's God, then he already knows where they're at, right? But they do it anyway. And so the same thing is true for us every time we mess up. We sow fig leaves. And we go and we hide and we think we can hide. And so you see it, especially I, I see it as a pastor. Someone messes up and they think, well, this sin, this mess up, this whatever, this breaking is a barrier that nothing can cross. And so they jump out of church for a couple of weeks. They jump out of life group for a couple of weeks. They jump out of relationships for a couple of weeks. And so they begin to build barrier and barrier and barrier and barrier. And the higher the barrier is, the harder it is to overcome. So recently I even listened to a podcast and, he was a major CEO of some major, major companies, and was a believer. And one of the things that he was talking about is that as a believer and as a major CEO, there were some other guys, and they were, had been accountable to each other for years. And one of the things that they wanted is they wanted to be CEOs that kind of set some things different from the rest, because that's a crazy world of 24-7 and all this different stuff, but, but that they wanted to be godly men of integrity in these places and to have a different thing about them. Well, he was, had taken a new job, and this company was, was tanking bad, and he was trying to help it recover in the midst of all this work and all this different stuff. He messed up. And he had monthly calls with this group of accountability people, and so they made that first call after the mess up, and everybody's like, hey, how are you doing? And, and, and this is a part of the accountability. This is a part of relationships is that you have to be, for it to truly be real relationships, you have to be honest and accountable. And he said, oh, everything's great. Everything's good. So then the next month came and made the call. Hey, how is everything going? Everything's great. Everything's good. And then the next call came. He didn't pick up the phone. The next call came, and he didn't pick up the phone. And he said that the overwhelming burden of my sin and my brokenness and my lying about it and my hiding it and trying to put barriers around me only made it harder to enter into relationship. The very thing that I wanted and I needed was to talk to those guys and to be vulnerable and to be transparent and talk about, here's who I am. No one else knows me but these four or five guys. But because I couldn't be honest and naked and unashamed, it kept me from real deep relationships. The very thing that he needed the most, the barriers began to climb up. And the same is true for us. We mess up and we miss a week. We don't go to life group. We don't talk to our friends. And we think we think that people see us and they see us as our sin. They, they see, they know, and that we're afraid of getting caught or we're afraid of getting found out. And so we, we, we alter our schedules and we do all this different stuff so that we won't encounter those that we think that know about us and we're accountable to. And so we put up barrier after barrier after barrier. And we wonder why we're missing out. We wonder why, literally, as the Bible describes it, that our bones become brittle because of the weight of the sin, because of the separation, that we literally don't get the thirst. We're thirsting, and we don't get enough to drink because we've separated ourselves from God, the one who gives us something to drink from. Adam gives the direction. He was given the direction to pass it on, and he didn't pass it on, and he, he didn't step in, and he abdicated his role. One of the things about marriage and this, this idea of companionship and spiritualness is that, listen, this is the place where we should, because we know each other on a deeper level and we're more vulnerable with anybody, is that this is the place that we experience grace at a place that we, and at a level that we would never, ever experience it. It's a place that we would experience forgiveness 
in a depth in a way that we would never experience it maybe with other people. It's a place that we can practice forgiveness. We can practice grace. It's a place where we understand and see the long-suffering of God, his patience that leads us to repentance. We see that in marriage, a healthy biblical marriage, because of this idea of the covenant. And that the covenant relationship is just Es and Esau, and that the covenant relationship is one as such as that one man makes a, a deal with another man, and they exchange salt with one another. And that the ability to break that relationship is that you have to be able to find the exact granules that you put in someone else's salt pouch. You have to find those salt granules and put them back into your own for that covenant to be broken. And so here, what God is saying to us is, I have established a covenant with you. I am Yahweh, covenant, personal relationship, God. And I have established a covenant with you. And there may be moments where you think you want to get your salt granules back from me because of something that you've done, because of something that you think is just going to move you away from me. But I continue to come to the garden day after day after day. I will not break the covenant. That should be us. God's given us this example of where Esau and Esau were one and the same. We've one flesh and that every time that we're intimate with one another, we're reminded of the covenant relationship and that we are together saying we have so much together to accomplish and to do. And grace and forgiveness and long-suffering and patience. Adam We'll find out a little bit later, Adam, what he should have done to keep his wife holy and blameless, is he should have taken his wife and said, honey, I know this sounds tempting, and it's tempting to me, right? Because he took it too. So it had to appeal to him. He had to have wanted it, but he let his wife, and, and what he should have done, what they should have done is like, hey, we are running away. As the scripture says, we're going to flee. We're going to run away from this dude. But they don't. Last is this, is biblical marriage is equal. Biblical marriage is equal. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27, we're going back there, and it says this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image. This is imago Dei, is the terminology there, imago Dei, made in our image, that man is made in the image of God. And it's this idea of equal, and so let us... God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the three of them are equal. They are all God, but they are equal. And so when God says, let us make them in our image, it's that this idea of we are equal. We're made in his image, but male and female are still equal, distinct, but still equal. So God created mankind in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female, equal but distinct roles. And we see this played out and maybe understood a little better in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 and following. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, because the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the Savior of the body. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also the wives are to submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. To make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for it, just as Christ does for the church. 
Now, this idea of submit there, this is an idea of outserving one another. That because we're a team, because we're together each accomplishing more, because we understand that we're better together, this idea of submit is that my wife and I will 100% attempt to outserve one another because my goal is to see things to her advantage and to see her grow and to see her accomplish her dreams and her things. And the same thing for her is that she's trying to outserve me. So it's 100% trying to outserve one another and that through that, that this is the deepening of that covenant and that I'm looking at ways to say, hey, how can I serve you? How can I meet your needs? What can I do for you? And at the same time, she's saying, hey, Chris, what's, what can I do for you? How can I? And so this idea of submit is 100% outserve one another. And then the other piece is that as a husband, when it comes to push comes to shove, when everything hits the fan, who's the one that's responsible of giving the most and giving their life? And that's the husband. That as Christ laid down his life for the church, husbands are to sacrificially give for their families. That as a husband that we sacrificially give for our wife, that we sacrificially give for our wife, and that we, in many ways we put ourselves last. We are the lead servant, not the one to be served first, but to be the lead servant. Because we love, because we're sacrificial, and that in this order... May God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, all three are equal, but there's still order within the family. May God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, they're equal, but they have distinct roles and distinct purposes. And so although that husband and wife are equal, we're a team, we're working together, when push comes to shove, the husband is the one that's the lead servant and the lead sacrificer. We're the ones to step in front of the bus because that's our calling. And that what woman, what person wouldn't love and give and submit and try to outserve a man that is willing to serve to the point of literally washing your feet and giving their life for you? Equal, outserve, but sacrificial. These are the things that are foundational for a biblical, healthy marriage that that it's a man and a woman that are in companionship together and they're growing in their intimacy and that there's those moments where we can be naked and unashamed and that our intimacy grows not only physically but emotionally and spiritually. And as we work together as a team that we're out serving one another so that we can become this team and that we're the number one champion for each other and that this together we're moving together in the same direction. And that in those moments where there's conflict in your marriage, there's conflict in your relationships, that the first place is not to point fingers at anyone else, but to draw a circle around yourself and say, what have I done? Where am I at that I am moving in a direction? I'm moving away from my spouse or I'm moving away from God. And where is that tension being created in my life? Where is that tension being created in my heart? Because there's those moments it's natural for us to make those fig leaves. And to say, you know what, the church is this, or that group is this, or these people are that. And it's words that many times we're trying to create a barrier for ourselves. Because we know that we don't want to make the phone call and say, hey guys, I messed up. I'm naked and ashamed. I've messed up. I need you to know me and be transparent in those moments. 
grace and patience and marriage are those things. I just over these next few weeks as we dig into some of these marriages, these are some of the things that we'll be talking about. I'm excited about what we'll be learning together over the next few weeks about once upon a marriage together. Let's pray together. Dearly Father, thank you for marriage. I know many times we wish it was easier. But it is worth it. Father, thank you for the covenant that you've established with us. That even in those moments where we mess up and we say that we want to run away from the covenant, you say, here's the salt, find it. And you don't even look for ours. Father, I pray that we would, as followers of Jesus here, know that we're so far from perfect, but in pursuit of a healthy marriage. And the Father, that we want to be and we want to have that companionship, that we want to be and want to have that intimacy. Father, we want to be and to have that spiritual connection and direction together as a couple. Father, that to know that together, that we are better together as husband and wife, and that we are a team. We are suitable helpers for one another. That together, each of us accomplishes more as we move in the direction that you have for us as individuals, but also as a family. And to know that there's those moments, that that rubber band, that there's healthy tension and conflict in our relationships. Father, that may you draw our attention to the fact that those rubber bands sometimes are pulled so tight that one more thing is going to make it break or one more thing is going to throw the other person all the way to the other side and someone's going to get hurt. Father, may we have an extraordinary sense of the tension and the band of our marriage and our relationships and that we would be drawn together through that tension, through that conflict. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.